Welcome to Generation X Paranormal. On this podcast, we'll dive into every aspect of the paranormal and view it from an everyday perspective. And now, your host, Logan Mathias. I'd like to open the show for just a second and acknowledge that a lot of events we're going to talk about that happened in Amityville that night. Okay, we're going to discuss the the crime and its brutal nature, and we're going to discuss the paranormal activity that that happened afterwards, or we'll just say the reported paranormal activity. And we're going to talk about um, things that have happened since. But I'd like to open up by saying and acknowledging there were six deaths that night. There was two parents and four children, one 18, one 13, one 12, and one 9, all of which met gruesome men. I'd like to acknowledge that and give a moment of peace for their souls. And now, on with the show. On November 13th, 1974, the small sleepy town of Amityville, Long Island, was rocked to its core. At around 6.30 p.m. on that date, a young Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. went into the Henry's Bar and declared, you gotta help me, I think my mother and father are shot. Now the patrons of Henry's Bar decided to, well, give him a hand. So a small group of people went to the home and it was close to the bar and they did in, fa- in fact find that the parents were shot inside the house. So one of the, one of the people of the group decided let's make an emergency call as, as any normal rational person would do. So they called the county police, the Suffolk County Police, and upon arrival, the county police searched the home and found that six members of the family were shot in their beds. Now that's the facts. And that's what we're going to focus on in the very beginning of the show, the facts. We're going to go into the, the long list of, of possible scenarios and whether he acted alone and whether or not there was some kind of, of mob conspiracy. And then, of course, the, the family that moved into the home after the events and then the proposed or possible paranormal events that happened. So we're going to start with the facts. So we do know, in fact, that um, it happened on November 13th. We believe sometime around one o'clock in the morning. Uh, that is when the 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 crime was committed. Now we're going to talk about the way that it was at least explained in the very beginning. In the very beginning, Junior, we'll call him, confessed the entire thing. Granted, when they first brought him in, he said a mob hitman came through and, and assassinated my family. And honestly, the last day he recanted that. So um, probably just could not see the inconsistencies through. And his version of events just kind of did not really did not really do him any justice. So he abandoned that and later recanted and said, yes, OK, I, I killed all of them. Now, this was his admission. Now, you whether you want to believe if it was coerced or, um, you know, if there was some sort of a ploy from an, uh, an outside agency to get him to confess, we don't know. We'll never know. It's just something that that was brought up later. So they 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 asked him what happened and, um, you know, he confessed to the crimes. So. That is the facts as we know it of that day. 
So, the trial. Ronald Fayol Jr.'s trial began October 14th of 1975, almost an entire year after the murders. His defense attorney, William Weber, was going to mount an affirmative defense of insanity, basically saying that he killed his family in self-defense because he heard their voices plotting against him. And he had a plea, an insanity plea, that was supported by a psychiatrist for the defense, Daniel Schwartz. So, psychiatrists of the prosecution, however, Dr. Harold Zolan maintained that he was not insane. That he may have taken heroin, LSD, and he had antisocial personality disorder, but he was well aware of the actions of his crime at that time. Trials judge Thomas Stark declared DeFeo's crimes were, quote, the most heinous murders committed in Suffolk County since its founding. So on November 21st, DeFeo was found guilty on all six counts of second-degree murder. And then on December 4th of 1975, Judge Thomas Stark sentenced DeFeo to six sentences of 25 years to life. So with that and the facts in front of you, I would imagine you would think at this particular point, this is a pretty open and shut case. And I'm sure that the people in that time frame thought the same thing. We had a crime scene. We had a criminal. We had a trial and a conviction. He admitted to the crimes. Granted, he was trying to get an insanity plea out of it. And who knows? Maybe he could have gotten it. Maybe he couldn't have. Maybe if he would have tried an appeal. Who knows? But we had a well-rounded um, crime scene. Uh, we had a confession. We had everything. So open shut. Everybody moves on. Grieve the, the people that were lost. And, you know, unfortunately, the world moves on. So here's where some interesting parallels come into play. All six victims were found face down in their beds with no signs of struggle. The police investigation also said that the, the weapon used had no sound suppressor and there were no evidence of sedation having been administrated to any of the DeFeo family. Now, Junior claimed that he drugged his family during his interrogation but there was nothing found in their systems. And at the time of the murder and the conviction, the weapon that was used to perpetrate the crime was considered to be a Marlin 336 Charlie rifle, which is a shotgun. It's a 35 caliber shotgun, but it's a shotgun. Very, very loud fire. And there's gonna be some conjecture of other weapons to follow, but we're just sticking with the facts at this particular time. And the facts will tell you that the father was shot twice, the mother was shot twice, and each one of the siblings were shot once apiece. You know, I, without a silencer, I can tell you that being a man who, who shot many weapons, both in the military and his personal life, you know, any, any kind of, of discharge of a weapon makes a tremendous amount of sound. Not to mention there is a smell that's involved. Uh, the sound is, is so violent that it creates almost a concussion in, in confined spaces, especially with a shotgun. So I, I guess that is, a, that is a very interesting fact for me to wrap my head around that A, all of, the, all of the victims were found face down in their bed and that 
there was no struggle. And for me, that, that is a very difficult fact to, to wrap my head around. So now that we've got the facts cleared, we're going to move on to some of the things that are potentially factual. So Ronald DeFeo Jr. states that he had a very volatile relationship with his father, Ronald Sr., and um, they owned a, a body shop, or I believe just a, a Buick dealership very close in that, in that area. And he worked there at that particular shop. Um, there was a lot of conjecture between uh, him and his father about how they did business. Um, there was a lot of violence between the two. And from my understanding, uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr. may have been a very difficult and violent person to have as a father. So what does that mean for uh, DeFeo Jr.? Well, you know, you would imagine the kind of things that you see happen with a lot of people who live a life like that. You know, he was a very troubled youth, uh, a lot of drug addiction, violence of his own. Um, he had a lot of struggles and a lot of demons, um, but it also grew a hatred for his father and most likely a hatred for a lot of people that were associated with his father. Now on surface level, the, the motives behind the, the killings were somewhat unclear and, and even to this day is, is very, very gray. I will say, though, he did ask the police um, if he had any rights to collect on his father's life insurance. So I believe the, prop, or the prosecution suggests that that was the motive behind the killing. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. In addition to that, there was some some mob ties to the family and you know whether or not that that had anything to do with the deaths at the time or, or what was going on um, somehow it factored into Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s uh, mind frame and one of the things he was concerned about during the trial was he didn't want to say anything bad about his mother because her father was Michael Bergant Sr. and his father's uncle <laughs> would have probably had a little bit a uh, little bit of anger behind him. You see, his father's uncle was Peter DeFeo. He was a capo for the Genovese family. So there was some pretty close ties to, to the mob at that particular point in time. Now, after the killing, uh, DeFeo went on to have many different varying accounts of how the killings were carried out. Um, the one that, that probably sticks out the most to me was an interview that he gave uh, outlining that it was not him that acted as the sole perpetrator of this crime, that in fact, it was his sister that was basically the, the genesis and the mastermind behind the killings. Now, I can go on and tell you what he said, but it probably better you hear it from him. In an interview with Dr. Stephen Hodge, he goes on to explain... Apparently, Mr. DeFeo has a new story now, but at the time of his trial, he admitted to having killed his entire family. So, Mr. DeFeo, tell me what happened. I went in there to scare him. I didn't go in there to kill him. What had happened was, Dawn was said something small. I said, if you want to get rid of mommy and daddy, I said, I'll go get you a gun. So I said, here you go. What do you want me to do with that? I said, it's all ready to go. Just pull a hand back and squeeze the trigger. And everybody was sleeping except her and me. His door was like three quarters closed. I went in there and I said, hey, fat man, fat man, get up. 
and he started to get up. I'll never forget that. I got scared. My sister looked at me. She says, do it, do it. I said, do it. I said, yeah, you do it. You know, I mean, we had a split second. He was getting up. I said, do it. I said, yeah, you do it. So then when I seen his body getting ready to make the move, I just pulled the trigger. After I pulled the trigger, I hit the lever, shot him again. My mother yelled, oh my God, run. Now my mother went with a hand. My mother went with a hand towards the side of a bed. My mother had a 38 revolver. My mother went for that. I said, oh. My sister looked at me. I said, are you happy now? Are you happy now? I said, well, she looked at me. She said, oh, oh my God, look what you did. I said, look what I did. I said, this was your idea, not mine. I said, look what I did. I said, mommy got shot on top of me. I left the house and I told my sister, I'll be back. Don't do nothing. Let me see what we're gonna do. There's things that got to be done, but I gotta get out of here because I can't deal with this. Leave everything alone. You know, I was really messed up. The more I thought about it, the worse it got. I was driving with the window open, the radio was off, the heat was off. And I was just thinking and driving, thinking and driving, stopping, trying to figure out what I should do, where I should go. And I finally came home. When I drove in the driveway, all the lights were on. I walked in the house, they held dawn, dawn, twice. Then I went up the stairs. I went all the way up the stairs, I got to the top, and my sister had a pink shag rug, Allison, in her room. And I looked at her and I looked down, and it was blood, a puddle of blood. I said, oh my God. And I had two brothers home. I went there. They were dead. I see a hole in both their backs. Oh God. Then I ran upstairs. I didn't put no light on. I ran up the stairs. And Dawn says, oh my God, Bush, what are you doing here? Grabbed the gun, tried to blow my head off. Try to shoot me again, it was in my face. So now she's a big girl. I got in a wrestling match with her. Nobody was fell down or anything. I got in a wrestling match with her trying to get this gun away. I had the gun straight up in the air. And I got my left hand trying to do something to her. I slammed her down in the bed. I grabbed the mall off the floor. And like I said, I hit the lever on the gun. A live round came out of the gun. The gun went off. I thought I shot her in the neck. Now, this, of course, was a, an insane departure from what what he had said prior to that. You know, he had claimed that he went and killed his entire family on his own. So bringing his, his sister Dawn into it uh, absolves him, I guess, in his mind of the murder of his, his siblings. And I don't know that that makes it any better or worse for him, but at the end... There was a murder. Now, keep in mind, when when Dr. Hodge interviewed him, this was 31 years after the incident. So he had a lot of time to sit there and think about the, what he had done and the, and the crime that he had perpetrated on his own family. So in 1990, DeFeo filed a motion basically saying he wanted to have his conviction vacated. Uh, it is basically supporting that, that Don had had an unknown assailant, fled the house before he could get a look at him, killed their parents, and Don subsequently killed their siblings. And of course, by his admission in that interview, said that he only killed Don, that it was an accident. They struggled over a rifle, and he thought that uh, he had shot her in the neck. Now, of course, this motion was denied. 
basically there was no evidence. There was no real evidence that anybody else was in the home. There was no evidence stating that Don had anything to do with the murders. Um, you know, it, it was just a, a very airtight case, um, so they thought. And there was really no evidence precluding otherwise stating that the only perpetrator of this crime had to be Ronald DeFeo Jr. In November of 2000, DeFeo met with Rick Asuna. I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly. And he was an author of a, of a book. Uh, it was called The Night the DeFeos Died. Um, that was published in 2002. So definitely a good read if, if you want something to pick up and read. But he, uh, he had claimed that um, in this interview that he had allegedly committed the murders with his sister Dawn and two friends. And you can look up the name of these friends. I'm not going to do it because I think that uh, you could probably state that this was all fictitious, but that he had committed the crimes with Dawn and two of her friends. DeFeo also claimed that his father, his family had orchestrated a contract on his life that they were going to kill him for some dealings having to do with with the mob. Um, and in addition to that, DeFeo also claimed that Don committed these murders because she did. they did find, or I should say, the police found traces of unburnt gunpowder on Don's nightgown. Now, that little piece of evidence basically gave, well, at least in, in Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s mind, they gave him license or at least an opportunity to claim that, that she fired the weapon because it was unburnt uh, powder. Well, fortunately for us and unfortunately for him, a ballistics expert said that that could happen uh, discharged through the muzzle of the weapon because she was in such close proximity to the muzzle when it was discharged. So that's how you get that unburnt uh, gunpowder on the nightgown that had nothing to do with firing the weapon itself. As for the crime, crime scene, and the aftermath of the crime, that's probably where our story is going to end with that particular part of it. Um, of course, he was tried, he's convicted. Ronald DeFeo Jr. never saw the light of day again, and he did pass away just recently in 2021 of unknown causes, incidentally. Now moving on to the Lutz family. Approximately one year after the murders, a new family moved in, the Lutzes. They moved in to 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. Now by George Lutz's own interpretation, the first week was, was fine. They absolutely had no problems. Uh, it was a beautiful home. Uh, they got it at a, at a discount. Um, the realtor did disclose that the murders had happened in that home. And, um, you know, the, the family discussed it and they, they knew it was gonna be probably somewhat sensationalized, but they, they couldn't walk away from the deal. It was just too good. And they, they went ahead and made a decision as a family to purchase the home. So with that, they got a great deal and they moved in. Now, this was a very beautiful house. It's a five-bedroom uh, Dutch colonial style. Um, it had a distinctive gambrel roof. It also had a swimming pool, boathouse, and was located on a canal. Absolutely breathtaking property. Now, not only did they get such a good deal on the home, but the DeFeos also purchased the home with 
some, in fact, much of the DeFeo family furniture still in the home. And it was included for about 400 bucks as part of the deal. Um, yeah, it's, I have to admit, that's probably uh, something I would not want to purchase a home with. Even knowing that the, uh, there was murders in the home, yeah, let's go ahead and buy a house and keep the furniture the family had that uh, was murdered in this home. Yeah, it's a great idea. Now, the Lutz family, of course, was George and Kathleen, um, and Kathleen had had a prior marriage. So from that previous marriage, she had three children, Daniel, who was nine, Christopher, who was seven, and Melissa, they called Missy, was five. Oh, and they also had a dog named Harry. So the Lutz moved in on December 18th of 1975, and a friend of George Lutz he learned about the history and said, hey, you should probably get that place blessed. And at the time, I think George said, okay, yeah, it's not a bad idea. He was a non-practicing Methodist and, um, you know, Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic. But I think they, everybody kind of came to the same rationalization that it's probably a good idea to, <laughs> to have some higher power step in because there was some really evil stuff that happened in that house prior to that. So George went ahead and got a hold of a priest that he knew. Um, he was uh, he's actually, interesting enough, he was a lawyer and a judge for the Catholic court, but he was also a psychotherapist. So I thought that was, thought that was a pretty interesting turn of events. So while the uh, Lutzes were unpacking, uh, the father came and he uh, started to bless the home. Uh, this was on the afternoon of December 18th of 1975. So he went into the went into the building to carry out the rites. Um, of course, you know if you don't know how how that works, the the father walked through the home with a, a device and started flicking holy water throughout the uh, throughout the home, and he began to pray. And by his account, he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. So when leaving the house, the father didn't mention it to them, probably uh, didn't want to disturb the fact that this family just got a heck of a deal in this house and didn't want to freak them out. So, you know, he said, see you later, have a good one, and off he went. Okay, so on December 24th, uh, he called George and said, hey, you should probably stay out of the second floor room that I heard this this voice. Um, and it was the former bedroom of Mark and John DeFeo. But a very strange turn of events, that phone call was cut, cut short by some sort of static. Now, allegedly, after, after this uh, visit, um, the father became very ill. He had a high fever and blisters on his hands, similar to a stigmata. And if you're not sure what a stigmata is, of course, you can look it up, but has uh, has something to do with with a physical manifestation of the injuries that, that Jesus Christ sustained while he was crucified. But um, you know, at first, you know, the family didn't notice anything unusual in the house, um, but that piece was only going to last for just a little while longer. Now, the Lutzes did attempt, I believe, in mid-January of 1976 to have the uh, house blessed again. Um, that experience, from what I understand, would turn out to be their final night in the home. So the, the interesting thing is the Lutzes declined to give a full account of the events because, according to them, they were just too frightening. So, having said that, the Lutzes purchased a home. 28 days later, they hightailed it out of there and left every last thing they owned behind. 
Something scared him out of that house, and they left the entire thing in 28 days. Now, of course, we know that is not where this story ends. Um, there was a book published about the entire uh, incident, the 28 days. Now, the author, Jay Anson, never actually spoke with the family. In fact, um, it was through submission of 45 hours of recorded tape sessions. And that's what he used to as well, basically as the basis of the book. And of course, it was a landslide of a, of a popular book. I think it, it broke around 10 million copies. I mean, it was huge. It, was, it basically took the world by storm. The Lutzes were the toast of the town. They had interviews with Good Morning America. Um, they had had so much publication done on them that, of course, as Hollywood does, <laughs> there were some rights sold and they're going to make a movie out of this thing. And boy, did they ever. Now, some interesting things came about from that book. Um, there were a lot of disputes about accuracy and, and things of that nature. But um, just to get an accounting, though, of the reported paranormal experiences that, that the Lutzes did go through, I thought maybe uh, you'd want to hear from the Lutzes themselves. Now, in an interview with Good Morning America, they went on to say, Well, at first... Just moving into the house was fine. It's a lovely house, yeah. and we enjoyed moving in. Uh -huh. Within a, Kathy's hand had been touched by something that we discussed and couldn't explain. It was just something unseen. We also had uh, hordes of flies that would appear within two rooms, and no matter how many times we would kill them, they would reappear. But if you have two or three or four within one room, that could be commonplace. Oh, when you're winner. talking over a hundred. Oh, this was the winner. Yes. And you're talking about how many? Over a hundred flies at fly. one time. And then you'd go around and kill them. They'd be lying on the floor. You'd come back an hour later and they would be there. More of uh, a gelatin kind of substance that we thought the children had somehow mixed something up and, and spilled it around the house. The next yeah. time it happened, the kids were at school. And there was just no way to explain how it got there. Did you all call, a, you know, a contractor or a carpenter or anybody to come and look at it and try to? We had show. several repairmen come in. Uh, telephone repairmen came three times because each time we try and communicate with the priests, we would run into faulty connections. Uh, we had extreme fluctuations in the heat between 40 and 50 degree fluctuations. Three times the servicemen came in. One time he was there, he heard the furnace functioning, and yet there was no heat within the house. The temperature was at 40, and yet the thermostat read 80. Okay, now, but you had somebody inspect the entire heating system. Goodness knows those of us who live in the North know what can happen with heating systems in a house, especially old houses. George, something about, there was also something about black, uh, in the toilets, the water black and making the the ceramic, the bowls or whatever black. China itself, it wasn't in the water. The china itself turned black. And at first it was one bathroom and then another and then another. So that by the time the investigators got there, a number of them were still black. And it was still that way. There was never any reasonable explanation. Did you have a plumber come in? I mean, when you first spotted it? No, there wasn't, it wasn't a problem with the water. 
the water was good. Did it, it was normal. But did you invite any contractor or somebody like that just to come say, hey, what's wrong with the toilets? No, because you didn't. Yeah. one of the things we found was the keyholes would eat ooze, a black substance, which was of the same nature and appearance as that which was on the porcelain in the toilets. And when the investigative team came on March 6, 1976, the substance was still on the keyholes and they were able to obtain samples of it because it was never in a moist uh, condition and they wouldn't do physical damage to the door, in other words, call out a piece of wood without our consent. So that's a pretty brief accounting of what the Lutzes uh, claimed to have happened that evening or in those 28 days. And of course, um, you know, the subsequent book and, and gosh, they made, I'm looking at it now, something like uh, 25, 30 movies having to do with the Amityville. I mean, literally, this is a cash cow, um, especially for the uh, the films and uh, also in a very sad and strange turn of events, Jay Anson, the, uh, the author of the novel, uh, he passed away before he could really get um, you know, get any residual or any income from the uh, from the movies or the book itself. I shouldn't laugh because it's sad. You know, somebody somebody passes away, but it's just all very interesting. And in the movie, uh, we had what? Uh, gosh, we had Lois Lane and Thanos' dad playing uh, George and, and Kathy Lutz. And if you don't know who that is, uh, Lois Lane, uh, Margot Kidder, of course. And Thanos was played by Josh Brolin. Well, James Brolin was his dad, and he played George Lutz. So, you know, it was uh, it was all a very fun, tongue-in-cheek uh, horror film. Of course, you know Hollywood takes uh, creative license, and you know the the oozing walls became huge, and you know it all became just so very Hollywood. But that's not to say that these these people, this family, did not uh, come across anything uh, at least. Something that was at least fearful for them to leave in 28 days. Now, later on down the road, uh, good old Ronald DeFeo Jr. just jumps right back in. He states that he knew the Lutz, he knew the uh, the author, and he went along with the story that that uh, you know that this happened and there was uh, evil in the home in a red room in the basement. The list kind of goes on. Um, look, I'm not going to say that was true or untrue, but I can tell you that Ronald DeFeo Jr. He was a known drug addict had problems with heroin, with meth, and a lot of different things. And he was probably, he was probably very, very out of it when all this was happening. When I say out of it, if you've ever seen anybody in, in the midst of a, of a drug struggle like that, there is a, there's a very obvious change in their, in their persona and their, and their attitude. And he was probably delusional to be quite honest with you. But so he basically states he knew the Lutzes, and this was all a big cash grab. The Lutzes were, were drug addicts themselves, and that um, he knew about it, and he went along with the story so he could make money. Um, but none of that could be really corroborated. Um, you know, I think it's, it's left up to interpretation whether you want to believe, uh, you know, the Lutzes or whether you want to believe DeFeo. I mean, 
none of it's great. I mean, to be quite honest with you, in reality, this home uh, at 112 Avenue, um, you know, it was, a, it was a suburban house and some real evil happened in it. A family was terrorized. I mean, you got to remember this family purchases home with the, the fail family furniture still in it. Now, whether you believe in, in attachment or not, you know, these people were murdered in this home and their furniture was still there. Now, I, I hope, I don't know for sure, but I hope that they were smart enough to have the beds gone. And I'm sure that was probably locked up in some sort of evidence. But, you know, if you believe in attachment, my gosh, you got their furniture. Now, personally, I believe if I was if I was murdered, God, I only hope that never happens. But if I were murdered, let's just say this this microphone I'm doing this uh, podcast on, I would think my spirit may have some attachment to this microphone because I've spent so much time speaking into it. But on the contrary of that, if I was murdered in a home and all my furniture was there from where I was murdered, I don't think I want to hang around there either. So, you know, a lot of this is left up to interpretation. Now, there was some some really neat legacy things that ended up happening. Um, I think one of the things that I find very interesting is that you had some very, very critically acclaimed demonologists by the name of, and I'm sure you've heard of him, Ed and Lorraine Warren. So on the night of March 6th in 1976, uh, the house was investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren, and they um, they took some crew with them, uh, Station Channel 5 in New York, and a reporter. And during the course of investigation, there was a, a series of time-lapse photographs taken. Now, you know, there were some people in there. There was reporters in there, and... <sighs> You would like to think there was no contamination of evidence, but the photograph, um, it basically it states that it, there was an, an, a depicted demonic boy with glowing eyes. Now, to me, it looked a lot like somebody peeking around the uh, side of a, of a room, the doorway of a room that wore glasses. And if a picture is taken, you're going to get that reflection that kind of looks like a, like a glowing eyes. Now, I wasn't there. We don't know. Anything can happen, but that's just the way I see it. Now, if you look at these photographs, and believe me, they're out there. You can research the demon boy from um, from the Amityville, or I should just say from the investigation of the home at 112 uh, Ocean, and you can see these, these photographs. Um, and there was also some things being done there. They took a parapsychologist, Hans Holzer. He did... Uh, he did a walk through and said there was malevolent, malevolent spirits in the house and that, you know, it was it was possessed by demonic possession. So, you know, there was some interesting things that did happen in that home. But was it also a cash grab? You know, I mean, you got to figure at that particular point in time, you know, there was a lot of a lot of money being thrown at movies that depicted this kind of thing, the haunted house thing, the the horror films and and Ed and Lorraine, they were fantastic demonologists and and whether you believe what they experienced or not, but they were very well known, but they weren't broke either. So, I mean, it just kind of depends on what, how you feel about it. Um, you know, and and as far as the Lutzes, unfortunately, they didn't make it too much longer. They ended up moving to California and I'm originally from the West Coast, and I did live in California for a little while, but they moved to San Diego, and that's where they lived. And I remember hearing of these two, um, but, you know, of course, I never ran into them, but, you know, they didn't live a great life 
really after that. Uh, Kathleen died in 2004. She died of emphysema. And uh, George died in 2006, not too long after that, of heart disease. Uh, the couple had divorced, but they were still in pretty good terms. But, you know, they just they had a rough go of it afterwards. And, you know, unfortunately, they were either wrapped up into this huge um, cash cow or they could have just, you know, been part of a big sinister plot to, to dupe us all. Who knows? But, um, you know, the house still exists today. Now, the numbering of it has changed. Um, I won't put it out there because... You can look this up and find out what it is, but I'm sure the homeowners that are there now would really prefer not to have to deal with this. And uh, I also want to kind of state Amityville is an absolute beautiful area. Um, It's very calm. The people are very nice. Yes, I have gone through there before. Unfortunately, I have not gone to the home. Um, Didn't have that kind of time when I was there. But, um, you know, if you're ever in the area, please remember these are families that are entrenched in this this community. And they're very fun-loving and very caring community. Now, an interesting topic of note. Four times the house has sold since the murders. None of the subsequent families, with the exception of the Lutz, ever reported any paranormal activity. So, now, it's up to you to interpret how you feel about it. Uh, What do you think? Do you think that... Do you think that the Lutzes were were just money-hungry people that came up with this this outrageous story and, and had a book deal and and they knew about it? They knew about it when the, the house came for sale. They thought, hey, let's buy this thing at a lower amount. Let's publicize it. And then let's let's just make a ton of money out of it. Or do you think the Lutzes were were victims of a very dark history of a home and there was a lot of residual energy. Do you think DeFeo and the Lutzes knew each other? All that's very interesting to think about and ponder. But then again, that's for you to decide. Thank you for listening to Generation X Paranormal. If you have anything you want to hear on the show, please reach out to us at generationxparanormal at gmail.com. Let us know and we'll put it on the show.